Thanks for joining us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your wallet. I want you to learn ideas to me so you can save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Coming up in a half hour, big controversy over the years. Should your kid work while he or she is in school? And my wife and I have had disagreements about this. I want to talk to you about what the experts think about kids working. And by the way, the research on what I'm going to share with you in a half hour has been consistent through the years on the recommended advice for kids working while they're in school. Our web address, Clark.com. And when you have a question for me, Clark.com slash ask. We also offer off-air advice that's available to you nine hours each weekday, which is uh, the times for it, 10 in the morning Eastern till 7 in the evening Eastern, in turn, 7 in the morning Pacific till 4 in the afternoon Pacific, and in between for Central and Mountain Time, obviously. And this is a free service of the Clark Howard Show where you can get free off-the-air advice from a member of our team. You can dial right in from Clark.com on your smartphone, or if you go to a laptop a tablet or desktop on our main page you'll see how to call in for free off the air advice i want to talk right now about something old becoming new again with a twist that makes me sleep well at night now one of the big problems last decade were the zero down payment mortgages and what were known as liar's loans and pulse loans. So a liar's loan was where without anybody documenting anything, you could say you made any amount of money, you could claim any amount of assets, whatever, nobody checked anything, and they just issued you a loan for a mortgage on a home. And that was not good that they did that. And then the pulse loans, those were similar to a liar's loan, but on those, you didn't have to state income. You didn't have to state assets. You just had to be breathing and they would make a loan for your home. So we know where all that went. We ended up in the greatest real estate bust in the United States since the Great Depression. And the real estate bust in the Great Depression was because of economic conditions. This time, what happened last decade, was the housing bust and the banking scandals led to the financial bust. But now, a number of lenders are doing, again, no down payment mortgages or those with tiny down payments, one, two, three percent. And it's not upsetting me. And the reason why is that the lenders have very strict criteria on what circumstance and who qualifies for these loans with potentially no down payment. number of credit unions are doing so. 
some independent mortgage lenders. And we were in an era right after the banking scandals and the housing bust where you flat out pretty much couldn't buy a home for a couple of years without 20% down or more. The pendulum swung really far the other way. So why is this not a swing all the way the other way? Well, as one example of a difference, there's a minimum credit score you have to have under these various programs to qualify to buy a home with no down payment. And those credit scores are higher credit scores. It rewards people who maybe have not been able to save money because you're paying on student loans or whatever it is, but you've done a great job maintaining a solid credit record. And then you're able to buy a home taking advantage of today's extremely low mortgage rates. You're able to buy a home even though you can't make the down payment. Now, I saw an item in the Kansas City Star about the default rates on these loans. And the default rates are tiny, the delinquency rate, I should say. And again, it's because of the requirements with these loans in terms of credit score and debt ratios. The lenders, even though they've made the ability to buy a home easier from the down payment standpoint, They've made sure to keep the rules strict on what requirements there are for what you're showing, how you've conducted yourself with money. Now, I always have to say, though, that's today. I might come back in six months and say, whoa, because there may be some lenders that lower the standards and create risk for the country again. But so far, so good, and it means... If you are that potential buyer, you very well may be able to buy the home you thought would be years from now that you could have the down payment to buy. Portia's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Portia. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great. Thank you. Portia, you tried to take a trip recently that maybe you should have just gotten in a covered wagon and gotten there instead of trying to fly by airplane. Is that right? I think you're probably right. Uh, what happened? What happened? Okay, I was briefly uh, delayed. To make a long story short, it ran into approximately 36 hours. The airline offered nothing but uh, they gave us a piece of paper with a uh, number to call to get a discounted hotel rate. When I called, that place had no rooms available. But I did end up finding a hotel on my own. I paid the hotel. Um, I asked for some kind of compensation. I did call after I got home two days later, and the airline offered me $100. Well, I told them that, that was not acceptable. $100 for a 36-hour delay? $100, exactly. Um, and initially, it did start out as uh, weather, but they did say for us, my flight, it was cruise, that their cruise had timed out. So they acknowledged that even in the call when I called customer relations. All right, so I, I want you to continue the story, but i got to tell you something by comparison. In Europe, if you had taken a delay like that, by law, across the entire mass of Europe, 
the minimum compensation you would receive is six, the equivalent of 675 U.S. dollars. Well, I didn't know that, but I did tell them that I thought the minimum should have been at least 500, so I think I'm not too out of the ballpark. So we have no law at all requiring that airlines provide any meaningful compensation at all. And the reason that is the way it works here is that at one time we had over 200 airlines flying around the United States. And the thinking was that there was so much competition that no airline could afford to treat you like dirt when they had a problem and you suffered as a result of their problem. Well, now we have three airlines that control three-quarters of all seats in the United States and are complete monopolies virtually in many cities in the United States. And even if you said, I'm never going to fly this airline again, they're like laughing because in a lot of places in the country, you don't have really anybody else you can fly. So I think that I'm always a fan of light-touch rules and regulations, but I think because of the dominance of American United and Delta, we need to have uh, passenger protection rules like they have in Europe. And in your case, all you can rely on is the pressure you apply. And one thing you should do is go to uh, dot.gov okay. or transportation.gov. Either will get you to this. Okay. And you'll see when you get to the home page that there's an area you can go to and file a complaint against the airline. Now, what happens, now remember, the, the airline doesn't have to do anything for you other than the piddly $100 joke they offered you for a day and a half delay. But once somebody files a complaint with the, with the government, the airlines tend to take another look and are often more generous. I do have one question. I understand you said that you don't care if you say you're going to buy another airline. But if you have been a loyal customer for over 10 or 12 years, does that carry any weight with anyone in their own before you go outside to go to a different uh, Probably, department? Probably not. You know, no. the airlines have become desensitized to it because they're, with the consolidation of airlines we have, they're so large okay. that their attitude is, why should we bother trying to make this person happy? We'll just get somebody else in a seat. Okay. I mean, you know, the incidents we've had this year with the with the brutally beating of that doctor and then that violinist whose hand nearly was broken by a United employee and uh, the, the thing where Delta wouldn't allow a man to go to the bathroom and all these things are because the airlines have lost their heart because they don't really have to worry anymore about how they treat people or alienating them. Do they get notification of these complaints? They absolutely do. They absolutely do. And these complaint rates are watched very closely in the media. They're reported very widely, and the airlines watch as well how many complaints are being filed against them at dot.gov or transportation.gov. Sorry? 
what all should I include in the complaint? They you keep it short, it. sweet, and simple. Okay. You say that you were booked for an airline flight, the airline had crew scheduling problems, and as a result, you were delayed a day and a half to your destination, and no compensation was offered, and only when you asked, you were offered a ridiculous $100. Okay, gotcha. No anger in it, just straight facts. Okay. Thank you. And so by the way, oh, one last thing. State what you feel is reasonable. You said $500. Yes. And then see, see how it plays. Okay. Okay? All right, Clark. You're so great. Thank you for all that you do, and I'm glad you guys were able to take care of me today. God bless you. Thank you so much, and uh, you're going to be uh, great at advocating for yourself, I'm sure, on this. Dinah's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Dinah. Hello, Clark. How are you? Great. Thank you. Dinah, you have a question for me about terminology involving auto insurance. Hit me with it. Yes, sir. Um, I was trying to um, lower my insurance costs, my auto insurance, so I went to their app, app on my phone and was just fooling around with different numbers, and they offered me something called uh, no-fault insurance. And I was just wondering if that is the same as liability insurance, and if, if it's not, then would I be able to have enough no-fault insurance for the vehicle that I have a auto loan through? Okay, so what no-fault insurance is, and the rules for it vary by state, but generally what it means is that regardless of who's at fault in an accident, instead of the insurance companies trying to fight each other over who's going to pay, each insurer just takes care of its own insured. In okay. some states the way it works is that if the if the accident is a minor one that then it's no fault but if it goes above a certain dollar amount then the insurers fight again okay now liability is in the event you're in an accident you're found at fault let's say somebody's injured and they want to come after you for everything in the world you have and so the liability insurance steps in, and that's the insurance company defends you and themselves, and they pay, if required, up to what you have liability insurance for. So they work very differently for different purposes, and liability insurance is your shield against somebody trying to make you poor, basically. It's time for Ask Clark. That's where you post a question for me at Clark.com. Producer Joel asks it for you. Yeah, Clark. Randy wrote in. He says, I've heard you in the past recommend extreme driving courses for teenagers. Do you still recommend those? And do you know of any good ones? The extreme driver training thing is in scattershot areas in the United States near the largest cities in the country and especially available at areas that have racetracks, NASCAR kind of things, or uh, auto racing of various types. And what happens in extreme driver training is your new driver, your teenager, and by the way, this is great stuff for you as an adult as well, you're taught how to deal with potentially life-threatening situations on a road that can be fatal for a new inexperienced driver. If you... uh, oversteer, if you end up going off the road a little bit, if you hit uh, in a rainstorm 
a big puddle of water that you start to lose control. It is terrifying for your teenager and may teach them a little more humility. The courses are very different than traditional driver training courses. And I think in combination, if you can afford it, the two in combination are wonderful. They also, the thing that I think has been life-saving for my oldest daughter is they teach you how to deal with tractor-trailer trucks, which any of us tangle with a tractor-trailer truck, we're pretty much toast. And again, the search term you do for your area is extreme driver training and then put in the biggest, closest city to you. Glad you've joined us here on the Clark Howard Show where you learn ways to keep more of what you make. Clark.com is our website. ClarkDeals.com, our bargain site. And I want to bring you inside my household for a minute. Having had a teenager who's now an adult, having a teenager right now who's 18, and having a child who is 12, the question comes, see, I'm like a guy with three only children. The question comes up, did come up, it's coming up now, the issue of work and how much work should a teenager do as a student? Obviously, if you know me, it's a big deal with me that kids work and each of my daughters had to go to work at age 15. One worked restaurants, the other worked retail. But then the question is, what about during the school year? And a lot of times, your teenager, because of how many activities teens are in now at school, sports, extracurricular activities, you name it, the idea of working becomes a real issue. Where's the time going to come from and not have grades suffer. Well, over the years, there's been pretty much a consensus among people who study this that the trigger point is that a teenager benefits significantly from working very part-time while they're in school up to 15 hours. And then if you go past 15 there's a strong negative effect for the teenager. Now, these are general guidelines, but not ironclad in terms of each child. But as a general rule, a child working, let's say, picking up hours on a Saturday or Sunday, or picking up hours after school a couple days a week, but never exceeding a total of 15 hours is great. My teenager and I went out for a father-daughter dinner recently, a talk, and there was a guy working at the restaurant we went to eat at. It was a quick-serve kind of place. And he had I saw he had school books with him. And I asked him how many hours a week he's working. He was in the same grade as my daughter, different school, he's working 45 hours a week and going to high school. 
And so he works till the restaurant closes at night and then works there on the weekends as well and goes to school. I said, you got to be exhausted all the time. And he said, you know it. But he had a parent that was laid off unemployed and he was supporting the family and the burden on him so much. But I'm sorry. I'm going to say something so politically incorrect. If your teenager can't figure out how to work eight hours a week while they're in school, they are the worst time manager ever. ever. And actually, a kid learns how to prioritize when they have extracurricular activities, very part-time work, and school. There's not any of us that don't waste time in our days. And I think that a student benefits enormously from having his or her own money, having time around adults, and learning the basics of responsibility that go with a job. It's just my thing. And maybe I'm a terrible dad for believing this, but I see strong benefit from work and its purpose. Kevin is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Clark. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you, sir? Great. Thank you. How can I serve you, Kevin? I'm sorry? How can I be of service to you? Uh, my wife and I are getting ready to go on a cruise in September, and I am also a member of... Uh, like cruise line discount clubs and that kind of thing, travel clubs or any kind of cruise newsletters I can be a part of. And I see sales and perks come along from time to time. And I was wondering if it'd be worth my while to go ahead and call the cruise line or travel agency if they could get me these type perks and that kind of thing that I sell over the uh, newsletters. It is always a good idea. Are you loyal to one cruise line? Not particularly. We've been on a couple different ones, and that's the only reason is because we have familiarity with those two. And which two do you tend to go on? Uh, two we've gone on is Carnival and Royal Caribbean. So both of them are very big into the loyalty points. And are you familiar with, uh, what do they call it at Royal? They call it Crown and Anchor. I forget what they call it at uh, Carnival. But what they do, what they've done to formalize this is you, with the cruise line, you get assigned a loyalty account number. And even after taking just a cruise or two, you start earning uh, some of the benefits. And Carnival calls theirs the VIFP Club. And so when you join, that's how they routinize and formalize the things you're going to get. Okay. I didn't know if there'd be something I could take advantage of. You know, later on, we've already booked like two or three months ago. And if we could call and, you know, kind of... Well, you can go ahead and join the program. Is your next one on Royal or is your next one on Carnival? Royal. So with Royal... You can go ahead now and join Crown and Anchor. You just go to the Royal Caribbean website, 
This is true, I know, with Norwegian, soon with Carnival. You just go ahead and join, and then you uh, call them and add your loyalty number, your crown and anchor, to your reservation. And then after that, you will achieve, after this cruise, you achieve their first level of perks. And then every time you go over time, you get more perks. Now, the cruise lines also have been issuing their own branded credit cards. I don't know if you've got more credit than you want or if you're interested in having any of them. We went that route through Carnival. Okay. And then the other thing that is a little-known benefit that works, I don't know if it works with all the cruise lines or not, but if you buy a small amount of stock in the cruise line, you get additional benefits as an owner. Oh, I see. So you got lower rates on the cruise, and you may get additional benefits simply by being a stockholder. So what I would do, if you end up deciding you really are going to go, as they call it, loyal to royal, or go all in with Carnival or whatever, you can check to see if owning stock in the particular cruise line you're interested in well, oh yeah, both, thank you, Joel, both Carnival and Royal Caribbean offer credits of up to $250 on cruises if you become a stockholder. That's awesome. Sounds like a great method to take. Yeah, so you, you got to have some money to buy the stock because the stocks of the cruise lines have been pretty good lately, so it's pretty pricey to buy them, but that's a way to get the discounts. Something else I wanted to mention to you, if you are a member of Costco Wholesale, are you a Costco member? No, sir, the other one. Oh, you're a member of Sam's? Yes, sir. Costco has a massive travel operation now, and they rebate almost all the commission that they get from the cruise line back to you. Okay. And so if you... If you put a booking on hold, if you join Costco and then you put a booking on hold with Royal Caribbean or Carnival or whoever, and then you release the booking to Costco Travel, when you uh, after your cruise is over, you get in the mail a, a cash card from Costco with virtually all the commission that they made from it. So it tends to be about 8% of the cost of the cruise they give back to you. Wow. You can can even book it on their portal. Do you have a Costco anywhere near you, or are you in a part of the country Uh, with no Costcos? Two hours is the closest. Two hours. (laughs) So you'd only want to do this if you're doing a lot of cruises. Right. That's funny. Two hours from the nearest Costco. How could you even live there? I'm a little obsessed. Connie is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Connie. Hi, Clark. What an honor to talk to you. Well, thank you, and it's great to have you here. I hope you can help me make the right decision here. I'm ready. Uh, I am going to purchase my son-in-law's house, which has turned out to be my perfect retirement home. Now, I I, I don't know whether to just pay off his mortgage and gift them the difference in, you know, in the cost of the house or go through a, tr- a, 
an actual buy sell with a realtor or just a, a lawyer, I guess. A lawyer, or, lawyer, not a real estate agent. Right. If you're going to buy their house, you've got to have a lawyer structure the deal to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. Okay. So when you buy it, you have to buy it as if it was an arm's length transaction at a price that would be considered to be a reasonable price. Is the paying off of the mortgage considered a reasonable price? Not if that... that's well less than market value. Are they trying to make a deal for you? Uh, I'm trying to do it for them, too. It's about 20000 less than probably market value, give or take 5000 In that price range, the lawyer would probably say you're fine and wave it through. Uh-huh. But at the change in ownership that the lawyer would prepare the documents for, the existing mortgage would have to be paid off in what's known as the due-on-sale clause. Right. So if you, uh, if the way you handled it was the mortgage was paid off, what the lawyer does is act like almost like a traffic cop. You come with the money to the lawyer, the lawyer takes a portion of it, pays off the mortgage, gives the rest to your um, son-in-law. And his fee as well. Right, but the fee would be tiny. Those fees are not high. Okay, that's good to know because that's what we were kind of trying to avoid, but then we realized we would be getting into gift taxes and everything else if we weren't careful. So So the funny thing is when people try to avoid using a, a real estate lawyer to handle a family deal like this, it always ends up causing more money and potential hurt feelings. Oh, and I don't want that. Yeah. So this is one of those cases where an ounce of prevention is the greatest cure ever. Does it matter whether I initiate the real estate lawyer or they do, or should I take control of that part of it? Well, if you're the one that's going to end up owning the house and all that, you just go ahead and do it. Because you're not going to take out any mortgage on this. You're just taking assets you have and paying it off, right? Correct. Yeah, so you hire the lawyer, you and maybe you have a phone call with you and your son-in-law on the phone with the real estate lawyer. You explain to him or her what you're trying to accomplish here, and it won't be their first rodeo dealing with an in-family transaction, right. and they'll know exactly how to do it. Not a general practice lawyer. It's got to be a real estate lawyer. And that makes sense. I've dealt with one before, so that's... Oh, did you like that person? I actually do. Just call that person. If they're still a business, I will do that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and that's the the right way to get this done. And and, uh, the fee, they're used to not getting a lot of money for these kind of transactions because the mortgage companies treat them terribly. So (laughs) it won't be big money. Okay, well, that's good to know. I can't thank you enough. That gives us a way to proceed then. And make sure you, um, even though you'll own it free and clear, please buy a homeowner's insurance policy oh. on it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> For all, all right. valuable. <laughs> well, great. Well, I hope you enjoy your new home, your former son-in-law's home. Joski joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, how are you? I'm doing fine, Clark. Do you know that I'm a continuing education student at CCC? I love that. That's great. Clark, Clark Community College. Well, you know, we have, we call it Clark Howard University, CHU. Oh. We promoted from a community college to a full university now. 
my error. <laughs> we even have well, Clark Howard University t-shirts. Oh, no kidding. We do. Well, I hope to graduate someday and get one. That's great. We sell them as factory, se- they're factory seconds, very low quality t-shirts, but we sell uh-huh. them as a fundraiser for Habitat for Humanity. That's a good, I do a lot of shopping there. <laughs> That's neat. So you have yeah. a question for me. I've been dying for somebody to ask me. Thank you. I get all these, I'm going to go on vacation in about a month and I'm looking for a rental car and I'm taking all of your advice and I'm looking, <laughs> i been searching and then I start getting these flashes on the screen saying $9 a day, $10 a day. You click on that and oops, somehow they turn into $35 and $50 a day. And I don't, it's getting confusing. Where in the country are you going? Tampa. Okay. I got a trick for you for this works in Florida and actually is working. I'm finding in more and more locations in the country. Mm-hmm. So you can probably cut the cost of your rental by two-thirds if you, instead of picking up your car at Tampa International, get it at a neighborhood rental that may be five miles away and just take an Uber or Lyft there. Really? Yeah, I'm looking. I'm just pulling this up right now. I don't know what kind of rates. Oh, yeah, you said like 30 a day. I'm looking, and right now, like in downtown Tampa, you can rent a car next month for about 15 a day. Okay. And so where you should look is Enterprise Car Rental is the biggest. Okay. It has locations all over metro areas, and you can find the one closest to the airport and see if they got a deal. And also okay. Hertz has a bunch of neighborhood rental facilities away from the airport. And the rates tend to be far, far cheaper than at the airport. Try it. You may save a fortune and have a great trip. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for tuning in to The Clark Howard Show today. And if you're like me, you like deals, well, we got our deal diggers hard at work at ClarkDeals.com that help you save money day in and day out. We work around the clock to find the best deals for your wallet and there are on a variety of consumer items check out clarkdeals.com